fishing on New Year's Eve. Where are you going to be? Oh, I'll be home. Oh, there, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's no, there's, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no place we go. Hello and welcome to episode 198 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. It's Sunday the 31st of December. Sorry for the delay this week. It turns out a compilation show is harder to produce than I thought. Anyway, hope you're all set for 2024 and you're staying as sane as you feel you need to be. I'm your host Ian Truscott, I'm no rockstar, but in this weekly podcast, with the help of chums I've met on my journey from sysadmin to CMO, I share the marketing street knowledge to inspire your inner rockstar. Come say hello. You can find links to me and my guests in the show notes at rockstarcmo.com. And we are proud members of the Marketing Podcast Network. As we close out 2023 this week, I reflect on the year with highlights from some of the 35 guests that I've had the pleasure of chatting with this year. And we close out the week and the year with a quick trip to the Rockstar CMO bar for a year-end cocktail and a marketing thought with Robert Rose. But first... We need to pay the bar tab. I'll be back in a moment. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Let's start with our first show of the year. Good friend of the show and fellow Marketing Podcast Network fellow, Seth Goldstein of Goldstein Media, made a prediction about podcasting. Seems like a great place to kick off. A big one is going to go counter to what a lot of people are saying, the naysayers. They're saying that podcasting as an audio, mostly as an audio medium, is going to go away. I think they're completely wrong. I think it might not be a revenue driver directly. I think it might actually be more of a business strategy, something to get your branding out there, something to make yourself a a um, thought leader in the space. I think that a lot more people are going to want to be on podcasts. And you might not see these huge numbers like the Joe Rogans or the Tim Ferriss's of the world with thousands upon thousands of episode downloads every episode. But these more niche podcasts like Ian's, like yours, the Rockstar CMO, or Entrepreneurs and League, more Digital Marketing Die for that matter, the other podcasts I do on the on the network. And I feel like those are more branding efforts versus self-standing efforts that are just like, I don't think that that's going to be the creator economy per se. It's going to be more wrapped more in the marketing, I think. I think it's as a personal brand. We're doing it more for the branding for our professional professional branding, for our personal branding, for just and plus we like to talk and meet people. I mean I use it for I use it for networking tools. 
I agree, and I think it's continued to be true this year that podcasting has a few purposes. It's not about huge audiences and revenue. It's about building trust and authority and excuse to reach out and chat to people, which is a common theme for the clips I'm sharing this week. I mentioned the Marketing Podcast Network and a fellow I've followed for years, I respect his work, invited me to join the network a bit over two years ago. Yes, Jason Falls, author of Winfluence, host of the podcast with the same name and the driving force behind the Marketing Podcast Network. This next clip was actually from the last episode of 2022, episode 147, but it was listened to mostly in 2023 and was one of the most popular episodes this year. Here, he talks about influence versus influencer marketing. So it, it really goes back to that difference between influencer marketing and influence marketing. Instead of, you know, the kind of the tagline or the intro to my show is, do you want Instagrammers and YouTubers to talk about your brand or do you, or do you actually want influential people to recommend your product or service and drive sales? And that's kind of the difference for me. It's finding actual influence as opposed to just social media influencers. And so we talk about the concept of influence as a strategy, which is far beyond social media. It can be, um, you know, from a from a public affairs standpoint or a communication standpoint, you know, political lobbyists are influencers. And and I've always used the example. There's a, a local store here not too far from my house called the Parent Teacher Store, and they sell school supplies and whatnot to parents and teachers. That's what they do. Well, if you're the owner of that franchise location here in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, an Instagrammer with 500,000 followers doesn't mean anything to you because, you know, one-tenth of one percent of their audience is probably in your geographic area, right? Consumers have said for years and research has told us for years that consumers buy from people they know, like, and trust. They buy from their family and friends, make recommendations that influences them above most things other than their own personal experience. Um, when you uh, tap into a brand community, you're tapping into the power of word of mouth. You're tapping into people who are actually influential because they use the product, they know the product, they're going to turn to a family, a friend, or if they have social media followers, that factors in too, and they're going to make a much more authentic, genuine recommendation to uh, the folks that listen to them. And so tapping into that community, um, while it scales very differently than going out and finding a mega influencer or a celebrity even, it's much more powerful and much more cost efficient. Aside from Jason, one of my go-to B2B influencer marketing experts is Rachel Miller, formerly of SAP and now doing her own thing at Suede Company. I've chatted with Rachel a couple of times, most recently in episode 163, and here is her take on B2B influencer marketing. I think at its core, it's ultimately just storytelling. Um, and I think humans have been doing that since we were, you know, banging rocks together, but it kind of, once you, you know, markers got a hold of it, then, you know, you have to commercialize everything. And I think just like, like most things mainstream, it goes to consumer first, even though one would say that B2B companies have been doing influencer marketing longer, just under a different name. Perhaps it was just, you know, peer to peer knowledge exchange. Like there's other ways you can like spin it and like, oh yeah, we've been doing this forever. You know, like someone's always recommending me to use a new business tool. That's basically influencer marketing. <laughs> you may not have had 100,000 Twitter followers at the time, but that's because it was 30 years ago and it didn't have that kind of opportunity. Um, but I think it's always been important. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can slice and dice it. I know for a while, there's kind of a rift between you know PR firms and influencer marketing firms in the B2B space. But now I think we're coming to realize because a lot of my favorite influencers are kind of what I call hybrids now. They're kind of like they bridge that gap between 
a traditional analyst and a traditional influencer because their 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 consulting firms are now becoming like boutique analyst firms and they're producing their own research papers and because again we have access to so much data it's not just like stuck with the big three like it used to be historically um other companies can have the same access and create um even more valuable conversation and faster i think that's kind of where in my opinion analyst firms are kind of being left in the dirt because it takes them six to twelve months to produce a paper six to twelve months is a decade in marketing time <laughs> like especially the last few years with like ai and everything it's moving so quickly like you can't hold data for that long um it just doesn't make sense anymore and i think we learned that coming out of the pandemic a lot of people pause their papers like if you have data from 2019 and now it's 2021 we're in a whole different world <laughs> Like the world changed, so um, you need to keep it current. Wise words there from Rachel. The cool thing about this podcasting thing is getting to speak to people you might not bump into in real life. And you end up having fascinating conversations. Brandy Johnson, CEO of the Coupon Bureau, was one of those guests. Recommended by good friend of Rockstar CMO Ted Rubin, Brandy shared some great insights as a CEO and a marketer. And the clip I've picked out is her advice for working with startups. Depending on the level of where the startup is, be prepared to take less money. <laughs> um, but but I would say there's tons of opportunity too because in those kinds of typically in those kinds of startup environments, there's a lot more room for yes, you may not make as much you know in salary, but there's opportunity for equity, and that's a really amazing thing because if you're doing your job well as a CMO in a tech startup, then that equity would always be more valuable eventually. But I would also say um, be creative. I know that as marketers, we're taught a lot of, you know, this is how you do this thing and this is how you do this thing. And sometimes if you just kind of take away all the constructs and say, at the end of the day, I'm trying to talk to people and get them to understand this product. Be creative in the ways that you bring those things together. You don't just have to do social. You don't just have to do banner ads. Um, See what you can do to pull those things together and surprise people. And I would say for most startups, especially tech, when you're in like bleeding edge, um, trying to keep that message simple to say, we're kind of like X, Y, and Z, something they can relate to and go, oh, okay, I got it. Now, now I understand. For marketers, that's probably a, a challenge, a fun challenge, but, but, but under educating someone into a new concept or a new technology is, is difficult. But if you can really unwrap it and make it simple, simply elegant, then um, you win every time. That interview was a lot of fun. And on the topic of work and performance, I've had the good fortune of working with Caroline Kay, a business coach, a podcast host herself. And when I chatted with her in March for episode 156, she told her story of burnout and shared some great advice about positive intelligence, being resilient. And maybe this next clip might resonate with you as we polish off 2023 and make plans for the coming year. You know, one of the things I believe is that to do our best work, we need to not only be in our best physical shape, but our best mental shape as well. And it's actually only through experiencing this myself when life threw me a big curveball. And I talk about this in my last episode, We Are Value Centric, which just talks and it's quite scary to be quite vulnerable and out there and go, oh, by the way, (laughs) this horrible thing happened to me and I became a bit of an emotional wreck. And (laughs) But, you know, actually... It's, we're human. We're all human and we all go through things and we all feel 
certain things at certain times and we have to find our ways to recover. And, and it's certainly this idea about having resilience and that kind of frustrates me because you build resilience over time. That doesn't help you in the moment. And, and I, and I absolutely wanted to find something that would help me in a moment when I'm dealing with a big life challenge. So I could stay on track. You know, I, I love the fact that I, I wear a badge of honor. I say that I'm a high performer, that I absolutely love that I get loads of work done and I can really focus in and, and do lots. But there is a time. And one of the things I learned about in terms of positive intelligence is that being a high performer is good for you to a certain point and then at the, the tipping point where actually it becomes one of your saboteurs and it is something that starts to sabotage the way you work. So a really great example of this is I would, <laughs> I kind of have like peaks and troughs as everyone does with energy levels and you kind of think, oh yeah, I could, uh, I just do that one more thing or I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to keep work until this project's finished and then it's done and then I'm free to do the next thing the next day. But working till the project's finished might be working through the night till 2, 3 a.m. And then the alarm still goes off at 7 a.m. And you think, oh, my God, I'm knackered. And you're just destroyed the next day. And then you're not making good decisions. You're not working at your best the next day because you haven't taken care of yourself. You're actually driving yourself into the ground. And that's where high performance suddenly, it's not high performance anymore. You're just turning it into a way of sabotaging yourself and not looking after those energy levels and who you are. And that's why so many of us get to burnout and get to a point where we just think, what am I doing all this for? I suddenly don't have the time to see my friends. I don't have the energy to go and play my favorite sport or whatever it is that actually is that big stress reliever that actually fills you up with joy and makes you go, great, I've had my my great fun and now I'm going to go back and do the work I love. But if you don't have that balance, suddenly you just think, well, it's just exhausting. What am I doing this all for? Where's the fun? <laughs> Love that. Where's the fun? Right, so shifting gears now to a topic that comes up a lot on our podcast. Maybe it's because I'm a former techie. It's marketing technology. While some people have wanted to chuck it into the portal to hell that we call the Rockstar CMO Swim Pool, it's a popular topic and a big challenge for many marketers. One of the experts is Kathy McKnight of the Content Advisory. I've known Kathy for years and she's been on the show a few times. When I had her on in episode 157, she shared this great story. Yeah, absolutely. It's about making yourself useful. So, you know, you think about any job that you and I do, we get hired to do one thing. But when once we get in there, we see what really needs to be done. Technology is very similar if it's adaptable and amenable to being used in different ways and to be really molded to fit an organization's um, needs to fill the gap. That's when it becomes productive. Make it make it infinitely adoptable. For, forget about how it's implemented or how it's you know how it gets rolled out. It's about making it so that the users want to use it, that they don't have to retrain every time they go in, that they're that's it, that it's intuitive, that it's actually solving a problem for them. <laughs> love that. I could have shared so many clips from Kathy. Love having her on the show. And on that same topic, another industry chum of mine, Teresa Wrigley, author, speaker, and renowned digital asset management expert, shared this in episode one five eight. When you're thinking about technology. find your future state. And that is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a discovery process, essentially, it's, it's figuring out where, where do I need to get to. And, 
you know, the, the analogy that, uh, I, I sometimes use is, uh, was really, everyone knows a lot of people know me for my analogies and, uh, you know, <laughs> and all the metaphors and analogies I use, you know, I, I, I like to say, um, you know, we're, we're, we're building, it's like building a smart home, you know? So you think about there's stages to building a house where you have a foundation, you have a framework, uh, you start to build the walls, you put the, you put the furniture inside, but you know, maybe that's where we were getting to 10 years ago, but now it's, oh, now we're building all these smart, uh, systems within the house and they're connected and we want them to be predictive and we want them to know what the temperature we like. And we want the, we want the refrigerator to, you know, sort of tell us. So, so now we're not just building a house where we put all our stuff. That's the old digital asset measure. Now we're building a smart, responsive, intelligent ecosystem together. So, so what I always say to my clients is, okay, you've never had a dam before, or okay, you've had a dam for 15 years. Okay, what's, where are you trying to get to? And I always say, tell me what you want out of your customer experience, because that's what, that's what dam is supporting today. You know? And if they don't have those use cases, if they don't have that fleshed out, a lot of times I say, go away and do that three months, you know, come back, tell me, because then I'll write your use cases for dam. You can't, you can't write use cases for digital asset management. You can't write requirements for digital asset management without knowing what the overall business goals are, what the overall strategy is, what the overall customer experience is. It's all interesting. A great point there about business goals. And to demonstrate the ubiquity of the technology challenge across marketing disciplines, when I chatted with Adiola Sole, CRM expert at Strategy CRM in April, she shared this about having the use case in mind. And I think this is a thing that you see time and time again, is that IT and the tech teams will all be talking and finding all these great systems, but they don't have the use cases in mind, you know, in terms of how is the marketeer going to action this through the platform? I could probably have done a whole show on marketing technology and the clips I could have pulled out, but we should move on. Aside from being able to tap into the hive mind of my network to discuss the big topics like that, like marketing technology, I get to learn people's marketing stories and pick up some great tips. Brittany Murphy, founder of One Thing Marketing, shared her agency founder's story in episode 160. And the lesson from it was focus. And she narrowed her agency down to serving a local niche. It has been nothing but pivotal in our marketing, in our track records, and everything we spend our marketing time on. And that kind of goes back to answer your question previously. How do we spend time on what we need to do for ourselves? Yeah. So if you remember that uh, little Southern girl that was walking into every coffee shop high on caffeine, trying to talk to every business owner, we were picking up people in every industry. I mean... I could name a mirage of different just categories that everybody falls into. And so from that, it allowed us to definitely build the business. And then we kind of focused and, and learned when we looked back at our own marketing data, did what we're supposed to be doing, you know, that we're telling our clients to do, look back, see where your clients came from, who are they? We realized that over half of our clientele was actually in the trades. And so we looked, okay, why do we have this? What's going on with it? And kind of after further deliberation, we realized these guys, A, kind of need the most help. Uh, they're busy. I mean, and one of their biggest complaints for my clients is there's not enough manpower out there that they can hire. Nobody wants to be in HVAC. No one wants to be on a roof. So it's really hard to get the people they need to do that. So they're busy from, you know, six to seven, you know, eight to eight. Like they're working 12 hours a day kind of going through that. So they don't have the time to focus on their marketing, but 
they're the ones that could benefit from it the most because let's just say that you saw a little bit of reek, a leak of a on your roof right now coming in through your ceiling. You have a problem. You need to find a solution very quickly. These guys, if they could be there at that point, it was so pivotal for them. And as well, if they did get a referral, if they have a good you know reputation online, if they have good reviews, it was so much easier for them to solidify getting that client. So we just noticed that they were getting the most bang for their buck, the most benefit. And we said, let's go after the guys that are really kind of getting the most from it. And I loved it. And so the fact that I grew up in trades and that's all we focus on now, it helps me build that relationship with those guys so much quicker. So it, that's, why, that's why I mean whole perspective of it. If it you are a marketer and you are thinking about it, take the plunge. A great story from Brittany and a lesson in how they fine honed their story and proposition. Something I'm sure Matthew would get, storytelling guy, author and owner of Go Narrative, would no doubt approve. I love to chat about storytelling and content marketing, and Matthew has been on the show a couple of times. And here is a warning from him from episode 174. You don't know what your story is. You're going to get trapped in what I call the practitioner trap. And anybody who's listening today is probably going to sort of have a little bit of a, a guilt as I describe this. But I'll, I'll also say, go and have a look at three company websites that you do business with today. Maybe they're a supplier, maybe they're a partner. Go have a look at their website and and ask yourself the question as you look at that website, Is the are the messages, is what I'm seeing on this website able to get somebody who's in a business decision-making capacity to say, oh, this is interesting, or is it really only targeted at the people who are already in that practitioner space, who already know they need that solution, which is obviously a part of your customer base. But if you want to go, and this is a big problem that a lot of our clients come to us with. They're saying, we are trying to get out of selling to the people that already know what we do. We want to get the, you know, the CMO. We want to get the board. We want to get a business decision maker, whatever their colors or their stripes are, to say, buy this product or go check out this service, right? And then the practitioners are a part of that conversation. But challenge challenge everybody who's listening to this today, go look at three websites. And that is ultimately, you know, one of the big problems that you run into. Matthew would get there. Another guest I could have plucked a dozen clips from, I think. As we say often on the show, your story needs to be authentic, coming from within and based on your own goals and values. A great example of this, and one of my most charming guests this year, Leslie Semagran, CMO of the Veterinary Emergency Group, shared this in episode 150 about how values are important to veg and their culture. Definitely. So we have four core values at Veg, openness, togetherness, meaningful moments and heroic helping. So a big part of my team's job is internal marketing and also kind of showing all of our Veg hospitals what's going on across. We call it the Vegolution. So sharing and driving examples and showing how these core values are coming out across the nation, not just at our headquarters, but at all of our different veg hospitals. Um, And also just showing how the values guide our decision making all across the board. So I see the team as being a big part of driving those, but it's really a key part of our culture and veg overall. So those values have to resonate with you to really want 
work here and want to be successful here. We saw the, our differentiators and what was important to our culture and what was driving the continued innovation and differentiation. It honed in around those four. That came from a lovely conversation with Leslie about a sector I know very little about, animal hospitals. And continuing on the topic of stories and of conversations I wouldn't expect to have, through some mutual chums, I got to chat with Jill Jago, co-founder of Vermouth Beauty, who have an innovative, sustainable lipstick product. You can check it out online. I suggest you do. It looks really cool. It sort of comes in a flight of colours in recyclable packaging in a very cool cigarette case-like package. The story of its inception is fascinating. Here's the clip. We were remembering our grandmothers, and this is what I say, lipstick's very emotional, how they all had these beautiful lipstick tubes that were refillable, and they, they would be almost like an item of, of, of not jewellery, but, you know, something they always had with them, and like a cigarette box. And so, so, you know, and they'd pull them out of their purse, and they'd, um, they always wore the same color. They had one color for life. That was it. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we said, well, let's get back to that. Let's do the refillable thing. And, and then we had all these great ideas and it was going to be made out of local materials and it was going to, we were going to have wood artists. I mean, we just, you know, flights are fancy. But then when it came down to it, no matter what you do, also it wasn't a new idea. It was like an iteration on something other people were doing. But no matter what you do, there's this little plastic thing that actually holds the lipstick that's part of the twist-up mechanism. And we couldn't eliminate that plastic. And we just couldn't. You could do a slide, but that's not a nice experience. And, um, you know, we were, we were trying to – we talked to people who do 3D printing with various, you know, biomaterials. I mean, we really were – we were really, like – getting as creative as we could we couldn't fix it in the meantime meg's trying to like move forward with the color development and she's created or she's making all these colors and she's just doing these little nubs of color and they're really hard to put on you know like meg this is great but like we can't it's really hard to sample it and from her artist background she said oh well we need a handle to hold these things so you can sample them and she was like oh it's like silver point. I know how to make a silver point handle. And silver point something that they medieval, it's a medieval art tool. They used it for sampling paint. Paint was so precious and they had to apply it so precisely and so carefully that they had this special silver point mechanism to apply it with. So she literally rolled up grocery bags and, and made this, made this handle. We love it. And then then uh, Misha took a whole bunch of them to a focus group to get feedback, we thought, on the formula and the lipstick and the colors. And they were, Meg had made a little box to put them in because they just, they looked like little crayons and she made a little box. So it was easy to take the focus group. And people were, they, they just said, oh my gosh, I don't want to pick one. This is the product. Like this isn't a sample, this is the product. And we realized that we just had ended up with something completely unique. I love that. Our products come into the world and how their cool looking flight of colors started as a sample box, a demo, and the people wanted that as the product. So some good sort of uh, ideas there about getting feedback from your customers and giving them what they want. Right back to the marketing and another origin story. 
I'm a big fan of the work of this next guest, David Allison. I first came across his value graphics idea in his book, We're All the Same Age Now, and his view that demographics is no way to group and target people. What we actually have in common as groups are our values. And he's done a ton of research on this. And this is the story of how he reached that epiphany. Well, I had my own marketing firm for the longest time, and we had a specialty area, which was very, very large scale, generally luxury uh, real estate developments. So guys building big towers and resort communities would come to us and say, help us figure out how to sell this stuff. And so we'd sit down, figure out a target audience description based on demographics and psychographics, because that's all we had. And then we'd go and spend a million bucks and we'd sell out the, you know, the condo tower or the resort community. And the cool thing about that sector in the marketing world is you get to meet the people who responded in fairly short order. So you launch a campaign and within a year you sold the stuff out and now you're in a room with them having a shrimp on a stick and a glass of cheap Prosecco and going, yay, we're sold out the building. Isn't this great? Lucky you, you all get to come and live here. And you look around the room and you go, who the heck are all these people? These are not the people that I spent a million dollars talking to. Maybe 10% of them are, but the rest of them are like, what are you? Thank you for coming. You made me look like a rock star as the marketing guy, but what the heck are you doing here? I didn't talk to you. I didn't put any ads in your channels. I didn't create um, creative messaging with you in mind. None of that. And yet here you are. And so when we set out to solve that problem, that's what led us into behavioral science and looking at how people decide to be in that room or any other metaphorical room we talk about in the marketing world. And it turns out those people in that room actually were identical. They were all there because a set of values had been activated. We just didn't know we were doing it. But it's the only way human brains know how to make a decision. So everyone in that room had a set of values that were similar and they all came because of their values. Now, I was looking at them and going, demographically, you people are all over the freaking map. This isn't supposed to have happened. And psychographically, you people are all over the map. This wasn't what was supposed to go down, but I'm glad it did. So we were accidentally being successful. And now that we see with a different set of lenses, we can go back and look at that room and go, oh, if we had just looked inside you, if we just looked into your hearts, we would have seen that you were all driven by the same things. And in fact, everyone in the room was, they were all twins. They were all, they were all as closely aligned to each other as you could imagine. So we just now have a data set and a methodology that allows us to take that accident out of the equation and to do it purposefully and say, let's understand why people will say yes before we start spending money so that we can just focus on the stuff that's going to move the needle and not waste our time talking about the stuff that's not going to make a difference. I'm not sure if my explanation and that short clip does justice to David's value graphics work. So please check it out. Like all of these clips, I'll include links in the show notes. Of course, David was able to understand what he shared there from the data. And aside from technology, data is always a hot topic on the show. And so is marketing education. So when I had digital marketing instructor to the world's biggest brands and most prestigious universities, Matt Bailey on the show for episode 165, our conversation turned to these two. Everyone in your marketing department has to have a level of analytics savviness, a, a level of analytics understanding, because and it, and it goes towards everyone having 
skin in the game, everyone having a sense of investment that what I do, if I know how it contributes to the organization and the organizational goals, then I'm going to approach it better, differently. I, I, I'm going to be a bit more motivated about it than if I'm just endlessly producing content. If, if I know that this content produced a reaction and it's measurable, and that measurability translate to a key objective that I'm in. So every one of my specialists, you've got to know how, number one, to measure what you're doing. Uh, to Because if, if, again, how do I adjust? How do I know I'm doing the right thing? How do I know I'm achieving the right results? So that's where team-wise, everyone's got to have an understanding of analytics. And, and really the the primary obstacles getting sea level getting management to understand these key metrics and the, and and the definitions uh, i i joke about every organization i go into the first question i ask in the training is everyone write me a definition of an impression write it down and and then we add it up and and there's almost as many definitions of an impression as there are people in the room uh and so right away that tells me organizationally, we're not approaching this correctly. So what I teach when I'm working with marketing teams or, you know, marketers from different organizations is creating almost like a, a, a measurement model, the marketing measurement model that what's your objective? Okay, what's the key measurement that shows that objective has been reached? And so for every activity, there is a connection. And there is a key metric of that connection that ties back to the overall objective. And so what we're doing is, is eliminating all of the fluff and the, the, the massive amounts of data and bringing it down to, you know, okay, so, you know, as a result of our content marketing, our goal is to produce leads. Great. All right. So those leads and, and by producing those leads, we're achieving this, uh, you know, so now what are the key measurements and, and how do we show the value of our activity? Uh, that's that's really what we drive to is is just bringing it down into a stage by stage framework of understanding what activity drives this index, which means this and it connects here and and pulling that all together. And it's amazing because at the end, you know, these marketers, they're liberated. I like that conclusion from Matt. With data, marketers are liberated. But not all that data sits in our systems, as I discovered with our next guest. I've had the pleasure of spending time with the founder of Radiate B2B, Riaz Kanani. His product delves beyond the data we have in our web analytics systems to a place called the Dark Funnel. Here is his explanation of that from episode 165. The dark funnel is this idea um, that a lot is happening um, outside your visibility. Um, and, and so I go on about this idea of shining a light on the dark funnel um, because obviously what we're able to do is to... Um, identify browsing behavior outside of your your website. Typically, as a marketer, you get to be able to see 
you know, how many ads you've served, how many times they've clicked. And so, you know, uh, and you'll see if they've converted. But, you know, the minute they've clicked, they, they've come into your visibility. And, and obviously, you know the impression, so you know that. But there's a huge amount now, especially um, especially today. And the reason why I say especially today is because the buyer is different today to five, ten years ago. So the big change, the big shift is that the majority of buyers today were effectively born with the internet, right? So they grew up with the internet. And so whilst before we were all savvy about the internet, we didn't, you know, our day to day was was not really involving the internet. We'd, we'd come to work, we'd use the internet, we'd go home, we'd switch off. Right? Buyers today communicate digitally. They're very used to sending messages back and forth. They're doing it both during the day and in the evening and on the weekends. And so when they get to the point of they're interested in solving the problem, they're much more comfortable about going onto forums, into communities and having conversations. Now, all of this is dark to the marketer. It's all happening. And of course, you know, this concept in a way has always existed. We call it word of mouth. But the difference is, Word of mouth was maybe this much. Dark funnel is now about this much, right? Because it's all, you know, go back to that 17% spent with the vendor. Well, that means 83% is not spent with the vendor. Where's that happening? Well, it's happening on social media. It's happening in forums. And so that's the dark funnel is all these um, comments and, you know, things like this, right? These podcasts. Um, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day about AI, Someone mentioned a tool, um, and I went off and checked out that tool. Um, That company will probably attribute that to Google search. And that last point is so true, and it underlines the folly sometimes of our attribution model. He heard something on a podcast, but the company's systems when he went and did the research and arrived on their website, would probably attribute that to Google, either as SEO or PPC. So some good points there from me, yes. Now for some fun. The final question I ask all my guests is what would they like to throw into the Rockstar CMO swimming pool? Inspired by the rock stars of old, they used to throw things in swimming pools, and I've had to explain that to our younger guests. It's our portal to marketing hell, where we throw all the bullshit snake oil and overhyped trends that plague this marketing craft we love. And there have been some fantastic suggestions over the years. Here are three from this year. The first, Todd Irwin, founder of US brand agency Phaser. When I first chatted with him, he chucked in brand purpose. And when I chatted with him in the summer for our second interview for episode 175, he qualified that a little bit. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I want to clarify something about brand purpose is that I think it's important. Uh, I really do. The problem is that a lot of companies want to lead with brand purpose and it isn't the most important thing when it comes to what the customer is looking for. So do I want to, you know, uh, do, excuse my French, do I want to shit on brand purpose? No, I do not. Um but because I, I do think it's very important. Sometimes it's the second most important thing. But without a doubt, the most important thing is figuring out customer pain points. How do you solve them? 
right? And then how do you solve them in a way that uh, makes customers want to uh, buy your brand, buy into your brand? Uh, I've had Todd on a few times, always a fun chat. And on to another friend of the show, Keith Smith from The Advertist, a chap with a ton of agency experience and his wonderful company. He got quite excited about group creative brainstorms in this clip from episode 177. Okay. When you get a team of people together, a bunch of people who work together, right, who are all in the same bubble anyway, when you get them all in the same room and they decide to have a group creative brainstorm, nothing will come out of it, right? Nothing. You might just as well let them all go home for the day. Just leave it to the creatives, right? Let the creatives do it because take a, take that money and go and take them out for a beer, all right? We'll go and take them out for a, for a nice meal, all right? Tell them the problem and let them solve the problem for you. Don't try and sit there with all the prejudices that you've got, right, from working in the business anyway and thinking that you're going to come up with something that's just so radical that nobody's ever thought of it. It's, it's bullshit and it won't work. Yes, Keith, that's definitely in the pool. And finally, Aaron Templer, author and agency owner at 3 Over 4. And he shared his pet peeve in episode 149 about starting with why. And maybe you should. Um, I'm going to take, and I know this has been a while since this TED Talk has been out, but I want to throw into the pool the notion of the start with why the Simon Sinek sort of fad, yes, that marketers still seem to be obsessed with. Um, I think it's time to put that into the swimming pool. I think, um, I, you know, it'll be interesting to, as you read the book, I, I take Simon Sinek to task in another way too. So we'll, we'll, we can talk about that if you have me back. Um, but I think that the start with why is way too internally focused and what marketers and branding specialists especially need to be focused on is we need to get to the why it matters. And I think that this start with why obsession gets us way too focused internally. And, and we need to start thinking about, it doesn't matter, Ian, that I do great things. It matters that I do great things for you. And as marketers, we have to turn that corner. So why it matters is a lot more important. There's this, this guy here in Denver, actually, his name is Jerry O'Brien. He's a marketing speaker dude on the circuit. And he talks about, you have to get to your because, which I also like. So more important than the why it's the why it matters it's that it's that because so i'm i'm throwing i'm throwing start with why in the swimming pool i confess i talk about asking why a lot but i like aaron's point there about the specific application from sinex work and perhaps we should chuck that in the pool but that's it from this assortment of clips from this year. I barely scratched the surface of the 35 guests who I've enjoyed on the show, let alone the gems I could have plucked from my regulars, Jeff and Robert. But this is not the end of the show, as we'll hear from Robert in a moment. I've also discovered that putting together a highlights clip show is really hard. So apologies for being late as I publish this on Sunday instead of Saturday. And if I missed your clip, if you've been on the show or someone you enjoyed hearing from, maybe I'll do one after one of these in the new year. Let me know what you think. Would love to get your feedback. And I will, of course, include links to all these guests and these episodes in the show notes. Right, it's that time of the week to not just wind down the week, but the whole year as we join Robert Rose for a cocktail and a marketing thought in the Rockstar CMO 
virtual bar. Oh, hello, my friend. And it looks like you've got an amazingly festive bar set up here for the new year and the horns <laughs> and the, the shakers and all of the new year yeah. celebrators here. So getting ready to bring in 2024. And this is, I guess, the last. This is your last show yes. before the new year. So congratulations on yet another year of nonsense. Thank um, you. And, and um, yeah, it's. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to keep it again really, really uh, simple here mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it is the new year and, mm-hmm. and we want to keep things really simple and we're at home and, and we're celebrating yeah. our holidays here and, yeah. um, you know, basically uh, really trying to get to the new year where we'll eh, get back to some level of work, <laughs> as it were. Um. So, you know, I, basically, I, I, I have a champagne for us because, of course, Lovely. what is better um, mm-hmm. than on, uh, than on a, a wonderful uh, New Year's Eve or New Year's Eve Eve as it is? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we basically have a, a lovely champagne. Now, I am a big fan of Prosecco, personally, um, over champagne. But being that it is the new year... We're going to have a a champagne because everybody has champagne. And mm-hmm. uh, I am a big fan of this particular champagne, which is the, it's got a, quite the long name, Envy Marquis de la Mysteriale Cuvée mm. de Grand Spirit. Um, and I'm, all the French people are now like yelling at the screen or yelling yes. at their, at their, <laughs> at their iPod um, and saying, this is my friend from my French is awful. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a French uh, champagne, a proper champagne, and it is absolutely spectacular. Um, It is just a wonderful, wonderful champagne, Uh, and um, I can even send you a link to the show notes if you you want such a thing. But it's a beautiful way for us to celebrate the bringing in of the new year and, 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 and all of that. And, by the way, if you don't drink the whole bottle right away, it makes a lovely way to for a hangover cure the, the next morning as you have your strawberries or your breakfast on yes. New Year's Day. Lovely, lovely. Yes. Um, and what, what's, what, whereabouts are we going? Where, where, what's your tradition on New Year's Eve? Where are you going to be? Oh, I'll be home. Oh, yeah. There, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. yeah there's, there's no, there's, there's, no there's, there's no, there's no place we go. Yeah. There's no place we go other than home. Yeah, it's going to be the same for us. In fact, today, the weird thing about um, my holiday period is on the um, 14th of December, it starts with my uh, old, my youngest daughter's birthday, my oldest daughter's birthday, rather. And then we have Christmas. Uh, we have our wedding anniversary, which is today, 30th of December. Then we have New Year's. Then we have um, my youngest daughter on the 5th of January. So in the short space of time, there is a lot of champagne. So I'm going to definitely have a look at this one. That you've recommended, and yeah, give that a go. exactly. That's fantastic. All right, so uh, we're drinking these lovely champagnes, and uh, we've we've done old Lanzine and all of our traditions. Um, and thoughts turn to marketing as they do with us too. Uh, what are we talking about this week, Robert? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the new year, um, and basically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what we can think about in terms of where we are, sort of coming into the new year mm-hmm. so and i'll tell you what i mean by that which is it's very often the case i find so going back right when i was a kid 
my parents used to tell me, uh, I don't know if your parents did this with you, but my parents used to tell me that, you know, I, you know, I, I was either going to be on Santa's nice list or naughty list. <laughs> and, and he would, if I was on the naughty list, he was going to leave rocks in my stocking. Yes. And now I, by the way, I realized the standard is coal there, but you know, you, I lived in the <laughs> suburbs. Coal didn't really play a role. In, 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 in. And so, uh, but here's the thing. That proclamation by my parents, and they did it every year, mm -hmm. um, left me completely uh, freaked out. Mm -hmm. Not because I thought I was going to be on the naughty list, but because I didn't know. It was the uncertainty yeah, yeah. Um, that was freaking me out. Did I do something bad? Did I, you know, was yeah. there a possibility? What was the possibility? You know, it was, <laughs> you know, was I going to get rocks? Am I, and, and, yeah. and even though I knew, if you sort of peeled it all back and you go, ah, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. But, it was the uncertainty there that is. And so, so many marketers, especially that I know, come into this break, you know, whether it's Christmas, uh, holiday, uh, you know, New Year break where, mm -hmm. and we're literally in the middle of it now because of the way the holidays fall this year, yeah. you know, we're literally on break probably for another week. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, we go into it unsettled, mm -hmm. right? Because we... <laughs> Many big projects have been put on hold, you know, mm -hmm. talk to me again next year, or they're yeah. undecided, or they're not yeah. going to begin, or they basically, you go into this with like, isn't there something I should be doing <laughs> to yeah. move this thing forward? Yeah. And that's the uncertainty that freaks you out. Yeah. And so, and, and I'll give you an example of this. I worked with a, a, a guy at a company, um, a marketing lead uh, director, and he was trying to get, uh, marketing content marketing a program going at mm -hmm. their their business and it meant a bunch of change and a bunch of ways that they would approach new content and do a lot of new mid funnel or bottom of the funnel content for you know thought leadership and sort of persuasion mm -hmm. and all those kinds of things and he was walking around and going around to the different stakeholders toward the end of the year and really trying to get stakeholder buy-in for this new approach and what he would get at every step along the way was not no, but not yes. Yeah. Um, in other words, he talked to, for example, the VP of marketing, and she said, well, it's an interesting program, but I don't know that the whole of our department or the whole of the company really understands content marketing yet, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not no, but it's not yes either. And then he yeah. talked to product marketing, and he tried to optimize the content for thought leadership and how he wanted to change that, and product marketing was like, I don't know. I don't really see what's really wrong with our content now. So what, what, what about it is wrong that we need mm -hmm. to change to this new thing. And he, again, talked to the demand generation team and he outlined how they might integrate new thought leadership and sort of stuff for the middle, middle part of the funnel. And they were like, well, we should probably just wait to make any big decisions until we get a software update. And I don't know when we're going to do that, but probably early next year. So anyway, yeah. all of these things were happening time and time again, and his confidence was really suffering. And then he came up with a breakthrough. And this is the lesson about all this uncertainty and where we are right now that I think we can all learn from, because I thought it was just genius. Mm -hmm. And basically what he realized was, was that instead of the people who just quote unquote didn't get it, what he felt frustrated by was his inability to really share a, a shared vision, right? A shared mm -hmm. level of participation. In other words, he could see, he could see how his vision was going to benefit all those stakeholders that he just met with, but he 
didn't communicate it very well. So all of his quote unquote ideas, well, they came across as asks, right? In other words, yeah. I'm asking you to do something instead of yeah. telling you what the answer is going to be and how your life is going to be better. Yeah. And so when the stakeholders didn't really have a ready answer for his ask or what was perceived as an ask, well, they would always reply with a very polite, well, it's not no, but it's not yes. Yes. And so he basically then created a list. He sort of took a step back and he sort of created a list of all of those uncertainty objectives that they gave him. And then he painted a picture where each one of those uncertainty objectives had a sort of clearly painted vision of the nice. future. Yeah, yeah, And that gave him the ability to bring in new business cases yeah. um, to each of those things. And that really worked. And so I, this, basically this three-step idea has become a core sort of way that I go into these breaks now. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's one that I hope I can share here, which is one, get those uncertainties out of your head. Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting that everybody have to do some work over the holidays or anything. <laughs> but if you're feeling this way, this can help, yeah. right? Which is yeah. one, take 30 minutes, list out those uncertainty rocks that are in your head, the things that um, you're, you're worried about. So you can mm -hmm. stop mentally worrying about it and then yeah. put them into two buckets, right? One is take all those actions or those uncertainties and create the ones that you can control and basically create positive futures out of and sort of put them aside. And then yeah. another bucket would be all the things you can't act on and you, but can't really control. And what to do there is to sort of what I call challenge the uncertainty. Yeah. In other words, what we tend to do when things are out of our control or they're uncertain and we're getting freaked out about them is that we tend to go ask other people and go, hey, well, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. What do you think? You know, we're asking people to predict the future based on data that no more data than you have. Yeah. And this is where we constantly check our inboxes for updates or constantly check our, you know, people around us to find out their yeah. opinion and basically say, what am I getting out of this? What are my advantage of this being uncertain? In other words, how am I given advantage by this not being determined yet? And write right. that down. In other right. words, if you're waiting for that big job offer that's uncertain, well, yeah. what about if a better opportunity came up before yeah, it yeah. actually, what are the advantages you have by not knowing right now? Yeah, And that's key. Yeah. And that gets to the second one, which is accepting the uncertainty, just like accepting it, accepting that it's going to be uncertain, feel it, yeah. acknowledge it, and then move along. Yeah. And then the last yeah. one, which is also tied to that, which is really focus on being present, right? When you're here, like present, being present in the moment. Um, and this, there's research that has come out not too long ago that found that basically humans, we humans, are more stressful under uncertainty than the certainty of inevitable pain. In other words, right. we'd much rather be in pain for certain <laughs> than be uncertain whether we're going to be in pain, which is weird, but okay, yes. that's where we are as humans, right? We, we basically, we need to deal with the fact that we're in the present and we're not in pain and, and we mm. can you know, avoid worry because worry is almost the most useless emotion. So balance that, right? Trying to do this spending time now with friends and family over the new year and it's fun and we're going to give each other new year's kisses and hugs and all those things yeah. and it's going to be fantastic and be mentally and emotionally present for that but it's also weird that at the same time we're also thinking about well what do we have to do next year all the shit we have to do yeah and when we recognize and this is my big lesson i guess when you recognize mm -hmm. you can't avoid uncertainty 
Well, then the challenge becomes accepting it. And it's only then can you be certain about all the things that you can change in the future. Yeah, I love this. I love this. And I've heard this kind of language around anxiety and around a lot of things. And like like you were saying, like, look for, I've heard it described as the gift in in the situation you're in and being present. This is this is fantastic. I mean, I was writing notes, actually, while you were speaking. I think I think that that process is only going to take you 15 20 minutes something like that but man that could take a load off for the holidays couldn't it so i think that's a that's right process and and a good one to kick the year off thank you very much and if people are kicking the year off and they're looking for certainty in their content consumption where might they find that they will find that at our lovely website Mm -hmm. at contentadvisory.net Splendid. And I know that a slightly shorter session this week because I know you've got places to go. Um, but I want to just thank you, mate, for everything you've done for us over uh, for the year for, for 2023. Wish you the, the most splendid 2024 New Year's Eve uh, that you could possibly have. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. It's splendid. And when people want to spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you? They'll find me on threads mostly these days, um, uh-huh. and uh, I'm love to connect with people there. And then, of course, where I spend most of my time uh-huh. is on LinkedIn. Love it. All right, mate. Well, I'll catch you then. And most importantly for me, will you be in the bar next week for our first show of the new year? Oh, indeed. Yes, I will. See you then. Thanks, man. See you. Thank you, Robert. Accepting uncertainty there. A bit like the randomness of the show, I guess. So that's a wrap on episode 198 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Marketing Podcast. I've been your host, Ian Truscott. Thanks to all my guests from this year and to you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and jiving along with us. I'll include links to all the guests and shows I featured in this episode in the show notes on rockstarcmo.com, where you can also find our blog, newsletter, and all of our previous episodes. Please let us know what you think. Drop us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app, or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, we'll be back to normal with Jeff back from holiday to discuss our five effing marketing fundamentals, and Robert is in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar. Happy New Year, my friend, and I hope you again join us here next week for a new year of Rockstar CMO FM. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.